0: This is Karma Shannigan's episode 998, A Conversation with Zeb Wells.
1: Hey, no
0: Welcome to the Comic Shenetigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 998. It's another conversation with Zeb Wells. I previously had the great opportunity to speak with Zeb uh, back in June 2016 on episode 382, as well as last year uh, back in July um, on episode 896. Uh, so now 102 episodes later, we have him back on for another uh, time to go through his uh, you know recent work in comics and what his methodologies are, etc. This was a tremendous conversation. I always have a lot of fun chatting with Zeb. He was uh, extremely generous with his time. We talk about his recent work on Amazing Spider-Man. We talk about a little bit of you know, what it was like working on Amazing Spider-Man Beyond. We talk about uh, his work on Ant-Man a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, just kind of t- touching on a, a lot of these different subjects. Uh, specifically talking about you know what it's like to launch a Spider-Man book. What it's like to do a centennial. Um, what his approach was for the issue. Uh, how it was cultivated and put together. Some inspiration. So there's a lot of good stuff to uh, find in this particular episode. Um, so I hope you do enjoy it you can always email me at comic at gmail.com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and listen to us on Stitcher. This is the last interview episode, so this is the, the last one. Uh, the next episode, uh, 990, 9 dollars is going to be the last reviews episode, and then we're going to have the last episode of the show, which is thousand. Right, the 1,000th episode. It's going to be multi-hours. Uh, it's got two hours talking about Spider-Man covers that I really enjoy with uh, two of my frequent co-hosts, Paul Scores and um, Nathan Strzok. Uh, we have uh, Dan Gavason from the Amazing Spider Talk podcast coming back. We have uh, Eric Anthony from the Cave of Solitude podcast. We got Curtis Finley from the Epic Marvel podcast. Uh, so a lot of different people uh, coming to... Uh, just chat for a bit uh, before the show, uh, you know, ends. Um, So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Zeb Wells. Again, this is the third time I've had the chance to speak with him. Uh, He's always a tremendous guest, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So sit back and enjoy as Zeb Wells joins the Comic Shenanigans podcast for the last time. Thanks so much. Enjoy! Adam again with a quick editorial note. I do want to thank a few people who uh, inspired some questions that were asked of Zeb in this interview. I want to thank Tyler Hugh Hewlett, uh, Nathan Strzok, Carlos, uh, Jan the Man um we didn't quite ask your exact question but uh, some of the ideas were definitely in there um wanted to also thank garrett um some of the ideas of his questions about the, the civilian cast was kind of integrated into the conversation um as well as uh, hankarooni uh his question was also asked as well so thanks again uh for adding questions to the podcast um and uh without without further ado let's jump right back into uh, me talking with zeb wells enjoy Zeb, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast.
1: Glad to be back. Thanks for having me on, what, this is like the third to last episode?
0: Yeah, it's going to be episode 998. It's the, uh, the last interview oh I, I, I do for the show. Um, so,
1: you know, it had to be you. Wow, thanks, man. That's a big honor. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's been so much fun talking to you over the years, and I was just actually re listening to our last conversation from last year, and it was so interesting to me just how much has kind of elapsed in that year. Because at that time, you know, Beyond had been announced, or Spider Man Beyond had been announced, but it hadn't started yet. So we talked a lot of kind of, you know, vague ideas. But one thing that really struck me by it is that it had been our first conversation in about five years at that point, and for some reason, I just kind of skipped over, or didn't talk about your amazing work on that Ant-Man miniseries. So I have to ask, what was it like working on that book? Because it's such a gem, and I feel like it was overlooked by a lot of people. It also came out at kind of a weird time during the pandemic, obviously, at the beginning, but it's such a, a marvel. So I'm just curious, what it was like working on that book?
1: Yeah, that was the first thing I had done back at Marvel. Uh, Spider-Ham might have come out first or around the same time, but... Uh, Nick Lowe had, which we might have talked about this last time, but Nick Lowe had started whining and dining me, <laughs> which, which in the comic book world means, uh, you know, a shitty lunch uh, <laughs> in, the, in the cafe or a restaurant close to the Marvel offices. And I had done a 10-page story for Spider-Man, you know, just a quick, like, cute little story. And I decided that I man I didn't have much to do. That was like after Superman had been canceled, mm-hmm. and but I felt like comics were kind of feeling fun. Like I started fooling around on a creator own thing. I've been I've been uh, tooling on, and when I when I got back and started working on that, I just realized oh I think some of my TV skills that I that I got the last five years are kind of making comics more fun to write. And so Ant-Man, I just got a Nick kind of put the word out that I was uh, back in the game. And Darren Shan reached out to me and said, uh, you know, do you want to write an Ant-Man story? And I – you know, I just felt like I wasn't in a position to turn anything down. (laughs) And and it's not that I don't like Ant Man. I just didn't know. You know, it's not like I've been chomping at the bit or had an Ant Man story in the chamber. So, uh, but I but I felt like I wanted to get back in the game. So I was like, yeah, let's do Ant Man. And I think that turned it out turned out being great because when there's not a lot of well, you know, when there's not a lot of pressure on it, you can just kind of be free and more creative. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like that was like a really fun series to work on. And because it was kind of loose and I was just trying to do a good job, it was a really good experience. And I also, on that comic for the first time, just wrote three pages a day, no matter what. Oh, really? And so I just burned through that. And that was kind of nice to prove to myself that I could do that, that these things didn't have to be super uh, hard or... You know, but but you know, it's also not supposed to be easy. You know, it's not like it was super easy either. Mm. Uh, something that I noticed on that series was how hard in a five-issue story, issue three is, mm. because it's I guess in a movie it would be the midpoint, but it's where you've got these fun ideas for the first couple of issues, but then the whole story has to sort of hinge and turn in issue three. Mm that gets you and and then you'll start tumbling down towards the end of the story. But that third issue, you've got to sort of wrap up what you've been doing in the first two issues and then just grab the ship and move, (laughs) you know, steer it towards where it's going to go. And it's not always super fun. There's a lot of like longer dialogue balloons because you're explaining more stuff and you're explaining why this means this and that. But that was also good because then when I got to the next one, I could relax when it got hard at issue three because mm-hmm. instead of saying, oh, hey, you don't know what you're doing. The story doesn't make sense. This is this is over. It's never going to make sense. You can just kind of say, oh, this is the part where it gets hard. I remember this. It's going to be very hard for a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. It, as I said, it was a delightfully fun series. I mean, you have um – Really big stakes, but what I liked about it was again that it was also very small stakes, and that it was really about a man and his daughter. You have you know world you know world-ending threats as well, but it came back to that kind of emotional core, which is you know a common theme in your work is that you really kind of get into these characters going through very, you know, realistic and relatable, you know, even though they're, you know, wearing ant helmets, et cetera, and, and suddenly, you know, uh, wearing bees as a suit, there's still very human, uh, aspects to these characters as they deal with very human issues.
1: Yeah, I think at the end of the day, I don't think superpowers and special abilities ever really create a story. I think they create fun things and fun details for the story. But I think the story itself always – it feels better if it's based in reality or or real human emotions or just really basic story stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember working on Super Mansion and about the third episode, you know, sometimes you'd get a note or there would be pressure from someone – that like all the characters had to use their powers every episode or say what they did or what their powers were and eventually I kind of just let go of that and realized that I did not care what all of their powers were It it doesn't matter to the actual story now but once you have your story you use those powers you know like oh thematically what is how does this power relate to the story blah 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 it's all Obviously, we're all there to see these characters dress up and use their powers, but I am always interested in the other stuff as well.
0: Mm-hmm. It did feel like you were definitely exploring like the kind of the limits and other things you could do with with uh, Ant Man's powers. Like as I said, just kind of wearing the suit of bees, really having you know in depth conversations with some of these 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 bugs was so interesting and a uh, you know natural exp- you know uh, uh, extrapolation of what his abilities have been. How early in the process were you sure I got to use swarm? Like was it just a no brainer to you?
1: Yeah, I think when you just start when you start looking at the villains available to you, and you see that there's a man made of bees, <laughs> you were like, "What, what are you going to do? You got to do it." And I also, and I'm not sure if I just read this online and it's not true, but I remember like in doing the research that it was just said that he could talk to all insects, and you know who knows what happened. Maybe that just happened in one issue, or maybe that is part of his power set. But I just thought that was awesome, and what I did is I started looking – I started looking into it as I, as I started doing research. I just started trying to reconnect with the love of insects that we all had when we were younger mm-hmm. because they're fucking awesome. <laughs> like you look, at, you look at what these insects can do and the different adaptations they have, and a lot of them are – they're just like little tanks And then they're also, on top of it, beautiful. And so I wanted to connect with the sort of the childlike joy of just being around insects. And related to that is when you were a kid and and you could talk to an insect, like, what's going through their heads? What are they thinking about? Mm -hmm. And I don't know. That just brought me a lot of joy as I was working on it.
0: Uh, an aspect that I really enjoyed as well, which is really played for laughs but is very funny, is this kind of um, you know uh, relationship that Swarm thinks he has with Ant-Man that they're buddies now, and that you know yeah. he's, he's forever in his debt, and the, you know Scott keep, keeping on saying like you're a Nazi, keep your voice down, like I don't want anyone <laughs> to know we're friends, was just a very very funny bit.
1: Yeah, I I like that. It was it was I think that was me grappling with having a Nazi character in the book it's just weird you know I, when we were growing up it wasn't weird because they were just like black and white bad mm. guys it was just it was cool like oh we have supervillains in real in the real world and then I don't know suddenly it got weird you know <laughs> like yeah be- because uh, suddenly like uh, being a Nazi was more it, it just people are trying to make it more of a grey issue <laughs> you know <laughs> and it's like what the fuck is happening in our culture and so it's just weird, and, and I'm not saying that Ant Man dug into that very much, but it was just it, that was just a little bit more running through my head. Like, what would it be like to hang out with a Nazi? It Would be disgusting. Like, it would be terrible. Like, this guy's just all in. Um, th- th- this Nazi b man. Like, it would be unpleasant. You wouldn't want to spend time with him, and you would not want him thinking that this was a team up, or you guys were, or you were enjoying your time with him at all.
0: Absolutely. Now, when you get to, I guess it's the third issue, I think, you have uh, the body of Humbug. Um, was that, again, was that one of those opportunities that you had to kind of go back to, unfortunately, like the the carcass of a character that you had played with before?
1: Yeah, I thought that was fun, and I always, always liked that Humbug character design. And it was also an issue of me remembering the story that I had written in Heroes for Hire, I think probably a little better than it actually was as far as the writing goes like the art of course is incredible but I went back and read it and you know you read anything you wrote 10 15 years ago you're not going to be super jazzed by it and I went back and read it and I was like oh should I be referring back to this story but I think at the end of the day it was it was fun and I I, I when I went back and reread that stuff I did, like, super geek out on that uh, Clay Man artwork mm. and the Alden Lee stuff, like, was so good. So I just kind of wanted to uh, pay homage to that.
0: Have you ever thought about trying to reverse it or bring back Humbug somehow?
1: Well, that's a great question, but I, I, I think that I probably said everything I needed to say about Humbug, but... <laughs> You're right, though, like in the, you know, I, I don't know why I didn't think of that, but Humbug and Ant-Man would probably have a lot to say to each other.
0: Absolutely. Like, it's interesting, like thematically, right? That they, they, they kind of fit together it was just because when, yeah. when, when you first kind of mentioned that uh, Humbug at all I was like oh man are we going to see the return of Humbug and then sadly just his you know just, just his body yeah. but uh, yeah. but, it, but it definitely like again I remember that book it was it was a fun kind of odd Heroes for Hire run that was very different from any yeah. other Heroes for Hire but very unique and fun and very you know interestingly en- enmeshed in its period with World War Hulk etc um, and so I kind of like that again That you refer-, refer to that stuff you've said before how you know you, you love continuity when you can use it and yeah. so being able to, you know, be beneath the catacombs of, you know, where the, where Hulk was, uh, you know, had his, I guess his headquarters, so to speak, when he took over, made a lot of sense and was a nice touch.
1: Great. Yeah. I, I hope it always reads like that because I, I don't know, I think that's the whole game with Marvel Comics. It's that, it's, it's big story. And when you can do that, it's just, it feels really good.
0: Absolutely. Now, I do have a question just in general about, Uh, how much more you can kind of explain your whiteboard methodology for planning out a story, which I've always found so interesting when you've mentioned it. Um, When did you kind of adopt that, and and where did that kind of come from, or where did that process come from?
1: Yeah, the whiteboard came from 20 years ago when I first got the job writing Tangled Web of Spider-Man number 12. It was terrifying because I didn't know. It was just like, hey, Zeb, would you like to write a comic? Here's a, here's what a comic script looks like. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. When I'm done painting houses for the day, I'll go home and, and try to uh, write a comic. Thank you. <laughs> and so I went, I went to my dad's office to like just try to work on it. And I, he had a whiteboard up, so I just made 22 uh, squares in there, and I started, I started fill, filling them in. But but what I wish. What I wish I had done I just had just trusted myself <laughs> because it worked. You know, I you know you got to see the twenty two pages you had to work with twenty now, and it really helps you decide how many because he's like, well, what is this scene? Is it worth three pages? Is it worth four pages? Okay, this is getting too long. Like this can't be a five page scene. So you just start managing your your space a little better, and. What's weird is that I just spent like the last the, the next ten years, you know, just rejecting the, that I might possibly know what I was doing because how could I have known what I was doing because no one taught me anything. Mm-hmm. But some, sometimes you can just trust your gut, and now I, I just trust the process. Like it, it makes my brain think about the story much better because it, just in a glance, I can see the whole comic at once Mm -hmm. and then you just know you kind of get a feel of oh that looks like a comic oh that all makes sense and then I like that it's on a whiteboard because I can just erase the whole thing if it's not making sense and also with this job of writing which is very cerebral and all takes place in your head I think it is very important to like to 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 give yourself tactile wins or things that you can see out in the world so you know you're doing work. <laughs> and so it's not just it's getting this stuff out of your head because if if it's all in your head you go crazy. It's 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 too much, but if I can like pace around a room with a with a marker and actually like move and do things, I think it just keeps the It keeps your brain moving, and so now what I do is after I have it all up on the whiteboard, when I sit down to write my three pages, I'll take a piece of paper and I'll draw three pages, and I'll write the name, the title of the comic book and which pages I'm working on, and I'll try to make the rectangles as square and perfect as possible, and none of this matters. No one cares what pages they are, what the comic book is named, (laughs) whether the rectangles are square or not. But it it creates a ritual that is pleasant and pleasing and fun. And that kind of lures you into doing the work and makes it less scary. And I think I talked about this last time, but there's a lot to this game, which is discipline and ritual Mm -hmm. And developing those are never a waste of time. How how do you make writing feel good? How do you make the environment for you to do writing feel good? How do you just take care of yourself in the process of writing? And so the whiteboard drawing these three rectangles, it all just becomes part of this weird self care that makes me feel good as I'm doing this. Mm-hmm.
0: When you were part of, you know, obviously the the spider, you know, the Spider-Man writer Slack, and also the um, the X writer Slack, was there a lot of talk ever about, you know, not about the main stories you guys were breaking, but just about mechanics and process? And like, was there anything you took from others to kind of try and add into your process, or were others kind of intrigued by your process of, you know, the whiteboard, et etc.? Like, what was that give and take like, or was there any?
1: There was none, and that you <laughs> you you. you, you... You get to something interesting because I will often ask other writers, like mechanically, like nuts and bolts, how do you do what you do? How do you do it? What do you do? And no one seems to want to talk about it. And I don't know what that is. And I, I don't in in any way feel like anyone is ever like, oh, it's it's my secret recipe and you can't have it. It's not that at all, but it's almost more like, hey, I don't want to talk about this thing that maybe I don't even understand Mm. yet. That's what it feels like to me. I, I might be wrong, but when I started getting into my process and really breaking it down and realizing that the more I broke it down, the more structure you apply within that structure, you can be a lot more free. And then you can like relax and be as creative as you want. And and once I started realizing that, I was like, oh, man, I want to know how everyone does this. Like, hey, do you write three pages a day? Do you just write? Because I've never gotten into more trouble in my entire life than when I just said, oh, I'll write when I feel like it. <laughs> that, that is like death. You're fucking dead. You're done. <laughs> because guess what? You're never going to feel like it. It's, it, you know, and some people do. And, and God bless them, but I need some sort of structure, and so I'm super interested in that, but I have found, you know, because if I'm in a room with Jonathan Hickman, I want to know how he does what he does, period. I want to know down to the atoms of it. Um, how do you do it? How and. A lot of times, it doesn't feel like a a uh, subject that people like talking about, which I you know makes me really appreciate you even asking about it.
0: Well, just, I mean, as you can imagine, like, it's from, especially from the outside, it's, I, you know, we all want to know how, how the sausage is made to a degree. And it's so interesting when you talk about it because it starts to make a kind of sense that I hadn't thought of. Like, the idea of using the whiteboard the way you do makes complete sense. I would imagine that everyone should do that. Like, it makes sense to visualize it because you're right. You're, if you're just thinking in your brain, how are you really able to structure things in a more visual way? Because it has to go to you know it's going to be it's going to be a visual. So the idea that you you kind of use that as a way of formulating at with what the page is and being able to understand well now it's going on too long because you can visually see it makes complete sense. Like if I was writing, I'd be like, that seems like a pretty good method. So that's why I'm so curious about it.
1: Yeah, and and uh, I am too. <laughs> and I, you know, but and, and I I do think some of the I do think some of these writers maybe just keep it in their head and start writing. Maybe not, but I—I I don't know. Um, but it was kind of fun. My my one of my friends started writing comics like a couple years ago, and he just asked me how I how how you do it, and I got to write him like a five page email, <laughs> and, like which was just like here's what you do, and and it just felt cool, you know, because I've been doing this twenty years now, which. Is wild, but it was just super fun to say. Oh, look at all this stuff I've learned! You know, you you, you do pick up tricks.
0: Do you look back, like when you first, did, you know, uh, we're learning how to kind of write a uh, like a script at Marvel? Did, does it make you laugh at like how what that was like? Like, obviously, you've developed your own style and what what a Marvel script for you is going to look like. Do you look back on those early scripts and do you shudder? Do you wonder like you know, why couldn't you, like, relax more and just kind of, you know, let the artist do their thing? Or, like, how do you feel about your original work? Not just, not the quality necessarily of the writing, but more the process that you put yourself... Because I know we've talked before about, you know, feelings of imposter syndrome and, you know, um, a lot of extra pressure that you put on yourself that now that you've kind of you've been Zeb 2.0, now that you've returned to the industry, there's a little bit less of that kind of self-imposed pressure. So what are the things would you kind of say to your younger self besides relax?
1: I mean, that's it. That's, that's all I could... <laughs> it's just like trust yourself I just didn't have any trust in myself and this feeling that I couldn't trust my feelings you know does it feel good does how you're doing this feel right then just do it like that but I, I just would go in circles because I didn't trust you know how could I possibly know what I'm doing how could it possibly be this easy or this hard or, or whatever mm-hmm. It has to, you know, it has to be hard or I'm not doing it right. And, you know, it's plenty hard. Uh, it, It takes care of that on its own. Like trying to do something new and novel and that is funny or fun or dramatic or interesting and also is fun for the artist to draw and also moves the story along and is also emotional and doing that for every page, that's plenty hard. You don't need to make it harder by shitting on everything you write <laughs> or you know, just assuming that because you wrote it, it's wrong or because you like it, it's wrong. And so, yeah, looking back on my old stuff, I – the thing that I – that really sticks out to me is, oh, look, this is a – this is someone who is trying – they're trying so hard that it's not – that it's sort of like constrained and doesn't feel fun and feels kind of tense. And then, of course, there's stuff like, oh, you did not need this many words to say this. And I know you think you were being cute, but you weren't. Like no one, <laughs> you, no one needs that many uh, words to explain something. Uh, but, you know, I, I'd be more scared if I looked at something I wrote. And it was exactly the same as what I was writing now. Like, that would be terrifying.
0: No, for sure. So coming back to Spider-Man for a moment, so obviously, like, last year, you launched Beyond, and you had the, you know, the Beyond creative team, and so I guess, Mike, I'm so really interested and in, in curious about, uh, obviously, the kind of the back door, or sorry, uh, back room, you know, discussions. So when that was happening, when they were launching Beyond, did you know that you would, you know, eventually, like... Uh, eventually after beyond was over that you would be the one to kind of shepherd the new stories forward or was it just always kind of planned beyond is going to be X amount of issues and then it's going to be a relaunch after that or like how, how early in the process were you aware that you would be the one taking up the baton from the team?
1: It was a couple months into the beyond process that we figured that out. So,
0: yeah, I guess that's a very simple question, and that's a simple answer. <laughs> so a question about that, like when, when that kind of gets, you know, figured out, and, so, and it, it, this kind of plays into the ideas of imposter syndrome that we've talked before about not always feeling like you belong at the table. So you're, you're, you're writing Amazing Spider-Man, you're heading up a team, but you're doing the adventures of Ben Riley. Obviously there's some Peter Parker stories in there as well, but for all intents and purposes, this is Ben Riley as Spider-Man, so not the quote-unquote real guy. And so now you graduate from being part of, you know, way back when in the brand new day era, you were part of that team. Now you're leading a team and now you're the sole writer. Does that make you feel like you've, you you know, you've graduated that now you're writing like the book on your own and it's about Peter himself. Like, does that internally feel different in terms of how you, you do it? And it's the main book. I mean, obviously you've done Peter Parker as well in the past, but this is the A book. Does that have any impact on your mindset or how you feel about it?
1: There's obviously as a comic fan growing up and always a fan of Spider Man, there are a lot of feelings and emotions attached to being the Spider Man writer. It it feels good. I do think you have to be careful to not let that mean too much because you're just you have you have to do the best you can do at all times. Um, it feels like something that is better to look back on than to in the actual process of it. You know, because I, that's another time where you get into a lot of trouble, where you, where you try to keep asking yourself what something means about you. Mm. Uh, what does this mean? What does this mean? There's no, nothing but trouble down that road. Uh, because the important thing is the work and doing the work so I try to just take a little bit of hey you worked very hard for 20 years and now you have this opportunity that's cool Uh, uh, but now you get to keep working hard and and you know, I just know I just know too well as a lifelong comic book fan who got to write comic books that if you think about it too long, your brain might seize up and you might get too scared to write your comic books. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a long way of saying I could not be more jazzed, but I'm trying to I, I'm trying to be conscious of keeping my head here and just doing the work. I just want to do the work, you know? For sure. As, as well as I can.
0: Now, you do join an, an interesting fraternity of people who have launched a Spider Man title and also technically had a centennial uh, issue as well. I guess it's really just you, Stan, and Dan at this point um, in that club. Does that feel, again, what was it like to, first of all, have the responsibility of getting to launch a new number one with Spider Man and all that kind of entails? And then also, a few issues later, celebrate a centennial as well during this, you know, the, an anniversary year. So, how did you. How did you kind of cope – not cope with it, but how did you kind of make sure that this was the best you were able to do because those are two big milestones or three big milestones, I guess?
1: Yeah, I mean it was, it was definitely wild and I just had to tell myself, stay calm, write these. You, you know You get to a certain point where you're like, oh, I know what I need to create in my life to do good work. I need a certain amount of time, I need a certain amount of calm, I need uh, to have conversations with people, I need to feel loose and free and creative, and how? so how much of that can I cre- create in my life around these Spider-Man issues so that they are as cool as they can possibly be? But, you know, you get in there and you start working on this stuff, and of course you start thinking... It's not enough. It's not enough. This is a Spider-Man number one. This is not enough. This is a issue 900. This is not enough. But you have to tune that out because in creative endeavors, there are – you can work something too long. You can work something too hard. You can – burn too many calories on it and you start getting diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. So you have to work with a certain level of confidence to say, okay, I've done enough. Okay, this is good. Okay, this is as good as I can do in this moment. And so you have to, it's a balancing act.
0: Now, when you when you do something like a centennial, so, I mean, obviously, if we look back at prior centennials, there's a high bar there. Obviously, we have the, the death of Ant-Man, issue 400. Um, you have the death of Spider-Man himself in 700. So there's a lot of kind of big moments that happen in centennials. How do you approach writing a centennial for Spider-Man? Um, do you want it to be something that's more evergreen and a little bit more, you know, this is a good jumping on point and a little bit less... Um, you know, difficult and more you know easy to jump into, or do you try to make it more part and parcel of the rest of your run? Like, what was going through your head when you kind of put through, put together the issue?
1: There was, I I had an idea for a story that would take four issues in the Amazing Spider-Man run, and then I Nick's just very early on, Nick was saying, hey. If we start this early enough, we could get a really good artist and get them to do the entire comic, or the entire story. Mm. And that was very compelling to me, because I'm such a fan of Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number One, which was the first appearance of the Sinister Six, Steve Ditko, Stan Lee, those big pinup splashes. And so I started thinking about it in that regard, And then I just do not think you are writing comic books if you are not writing for your artist. Mm. And I have all, there's nothing worse than writing a comic that you don't know who's going to draw it. Because if you know who's going to draw it, they're, they're on your mind. They are with you in your office as you are breaking the story because you are seeing their images in your head and you're sort of asking yourself what kind of story the artist artwork is trying to tell and you're going from there. And so when we got Ed McGinnis, that started just coloring what kind of story I wanted to tell. And so the story that we ended up with, I think at the end of the day, did beer more evergreen but I think it was trying to tell the most bombastic story with as many colorful characters in it as possible because that's what, that's what I wanted to see Ed draw. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that a 70-page Ed McGinnis Spider-Man story dropped into your lap on some Wednesday – would just be really frickin' fun to have happen, you know? And so I wanted the story to be fun and a celebration and just a fun, done-in-one story. You know, I, I so I do think I wanted it to be more done-in-one because I just wanted it to be a thing mm-hmm. that you sat down and read and maybe didn't need to know what had happened before or what's coming after, but you could just get, like, a badass Spider-Man story And so that's what I tried
0: to do. When you were writing this particular issue, because, as you said, you had to kind of do it a little bit, you know, faster and in advance so that you could get it all to Ed. was it ended up, did it actually get written kind of before you were done the first arc of of Amazing Spider-Man? Or how did, what was the sequence in terms of the actual writing?
1: Yeah, it was written during, before, during, and after. Yeah, I think I started it right after finishing issue one of Amazing Spider-Man because we wanted to give Ed the time to do it, and, you know, Ed did a fantastic job. There's no, not one page of that is phoned in. He really killed it, and the colors killed it. And so that was interesting because I would have to write 10 pages of it and then write another Spider-Man issue, then come back and write another 10 pages and uh, back and forth. So that's been the, the... most intense and educational part that I'm still trying to figure out with Amazing Spider-Man coming out twice a week, which doesn't just mean you have to write a comic twice a week. It more means you have to write a comic every week because of the different artists that are working on it. Hmm. Because an artist can't draw a book twice a month, so you've always got like three or four artists that you're feeding. And so you're working... Out of, out of sequence has probably been the biggest challenge for me is, is adjusting my brain to work out of sequence because I do think that I work organically and I want to surprise myself in the process of writing an issue and then pick up on some of those surprises in the next issue and in the next issue and so you have to think much farther ahead which I'm trying to wrangle my brain into doing
0: was that something that also kind of came up when you guys were working on Beyond as well? Because then not only is it you, but you also have other art, other writers and artists involved in between your own issues. And so, like I talked with Kelly Thompson about that before, about you know it's it's a, it's a juggling act. It's very difficult to kind of do, and the people who can do it really well are. You know, really good good for a reason, Uh, but it is a very difficult. How did you manage that? Because uh, obviously, as the quote unquote showrunner, it might have been a little bit easier because of how you're kind of directing things, but it's still a very challenging experience to be writing not every issue, but you know, two issues here, an issue here, but also kind of looking at what other people are doing and sometimes writing before those scripts are necessarily done or the issues are done.
1: Yeah, I think it was, it's always fun. I love it. I love it because. Speaking of those surprises people find, it's also fun to see, to discover the surprise that Saladin found in his comic, Mm. or Cody did, and, and and taking those balls and running with it, super fun. Once you get to the point where someone's writing a script and you're writing the next script and you're writing them at the same time, the fun is gone. There is no fun. Then you feel a little untethered. And it is not ideal. Uh, but that's where that's where the artistry and the and the you know, rising to a challenge comes into play because it create it, it injects a little chaos into the process. But if you can ride that wave, there's nothing wrong with a little chaos because it creates interesting you know, new interesting art because you go somewhere that you didn't think you would go.
0: For sure. Now, now that you're writing amazing, so a question I had in general is that so far, you know, we're we're getting a little bit more of supporting cast check-ins, and even with issue 900, uh, you know, we have a lot of supporting cast kind of show up at the at this uh, you know ill gotten birthday party for uh, for Peter. Um, What what does the supporting cast mean to you? Because there have been times in the book where supporting cast just kind of disappears, and it's unfortunate. But I would say that some of the best times is when it does feel like a lived in universe, and characters are you know have personalities and uh, storylines that kind of dovetail in and out. So, what is it like to be able to? really give life to that supporting cast and how do you choose some of these characters because like even at the party you have Vin Gonzalez show up where I don't think we've seen him in a long time so I'm very curious like what the thought process was on who to bring
1: yeah for the, for the issue 900 it was who's available let's get everybody into a room for <laughs> the anniversary issue and then going forward I do I, I'm with you I want to use as many of them as humanly possible and then put them into a, you know, put them into a room together and see what happens. But there are some like Norman Osborn having his sins taken away and uh, Nick's run, and that allowing us to maybe have Norman and Peter grapple with their relationship a little bit more. And then because it's a superhero book, how does that spin off into superhero adventures where quickly? You're like, oh, well, Norman Osborn being in the book for a couple pages, every issue is going to be awesome and just by its nature create so many stories. So we've got to do that. (laughs) And then aside from that, it's just, you know, but you are writing a line. You don't want to overstuff the book. And and I always want to make sure that anyone in the book has cool stuff to do And we get to explore their interior life a little bit more. So some of the supporting cast, just by that nature, become more fun pop-in characters, and then some of them take root. But it all it all comes down to what they can bring to the story, which at the end of the day will be Peter Parker's story. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, one thing I'm curious is that like the 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 whole the, the new run has been like talked about and very enjoyable. I'm curious about the decision in general to kind of end the beyond era with, you know, a cliffhanger of sorts of, we see this moment with Peter and MJ and then we kind of end. And then you start with kind of a mystery box in terms of what happened prior um, to issue one, what kind of went into that thought process as a way of kind of generating or moving the story forward? And was it important for you to be able to establish a time jump so that you could kind of, you know, move things a little bit more cleanly away from the prior status quo?
1: Yeah, I think that was the intention and it just, I don't know, it feels like it's more fun and I feel like it weights things more and just makes them feel a little more heavy when you see the fallout of it and then you when you reveal what happened you you know that it's important and you're filling in the blanks. I, I like that and... I liked that in my New Mutants run. That was really fun for me to have Ileana come back at the beginning of that run and say, hey, some bad, bad stuff happened. And then over the course of 20-some issues, you explore and reveal what she was talking about. And so I did like that. But I think you're right is is how often do you get to – Just do a Spider-Man number one and make new readers and old readers come in and and both of them sort of have some catching up to do and are in the same place. And I, I like that part of it as well
0: when you're writing this volume, specifically the first arc, you get John Remeter Jr. is your artist. So how, first of all, surreal is that to be drawing, you know, or sort of writing Spider-Man when he's the one drawing it? And because of his kind of legendary speed, he's a very fast artist. Um, did you ever find that you were kind of racing to keep up with him?
1: Yeah, I I don't think I've been racing too much because the the pace of this book is super fast. So, so there is, you're just always working on it. Mm. There's no, there's no like going fast and slowing down. It's just going fast the whole time. But I would find, I, I would say that I tend to write issues for him so fast because I love his artwork so much and I love his storytelling so much That when I know that I'm going to be writing for him, there's something so pleasurable, pleasurable about it. Because as I'm writing, I see his artwork in my head, and I just can't wait. I just can't wait to see it drawn. So getting pages from him is just such a thrill. It just doesn't seem real because of how long I've loved his artwork. And how good he's been for so long. So that, if anything about this process, being the amazing Spider-Man writer, I'm trying to absorb and just really, really, really enjoy. It's the fact that I'm writing a Spider-Man book and John Romita Jr.'s drawing it.
0: I would imagine that would be a crazy surreal experience Especially as someone, as you said Who's been such a fan of the character and his work To actually get to see pages come in That you wrote is got to be an interesting experience Do you, uh, Have you been able to get Any of those original art uh, pages from John?
1: I haven't asked yet Because everything has been such a whirlwind But, you know, that will happen for sure And, uh, you know, if he says no I'm going to light him up on Twitter <laughs> It's going to be bad
0: would you – I mean like when, when you write – this is such a weird question but like when you write stuff for him, if there was something you were writing that you think is going to be really special, would you put in the margins, by the way, I want this?
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but I, I should start doing that. That's not a bad idea. That's, that's actually genius
0: when pages started coming in from, from J.R.J.R. about Tombstone, so Tombstone obviously visually looks a little bit different than we're maybe used to with the classic kind of Buscema uh, design. Did you find that you... It, it, at times almost felt like you leaned into the slightly different visual in terms of how you wrote the character and some of his brutality. Did you feel that way when you were writing him?
1: Yeah, that's it, that was a really interesting experience. And... I always, you know, I never knew what to make of it when you hear writers talk about, oh, the character started writing himself and wanted it to be like this. But this, it was just a weird experience writing Tombstone in that arc because I am such a fan of Tombstone from those Sal Bushema issues of Spectacular Spider Man. I love how they played him like a bully. You know, even as an adult, it was just a story about bullies. Mm -hmm. And the Tombstone stories were always stories about bullies. And that's the type of story I wanted to write. I wanted to dig into that and write a story like that. And then seeing the designs, and I think it was even before the design, it was almost like a new version of Tombstone just said, no, no, this is what we're doing. We're doing, (laughs) this 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 is who I am now. Um, this is my, this is my character going forward and I don't do that. You know, I don't, I, I try to read a character's early appearances and just try to write them exactly as they were presented, uh, as much as possible. But for some reason, Tombstone came out different in this comic and, uh, I, I don't know what to say about that. Hmm.
0: It, it, it's it's an interesting version of the character and he's still very smart and I like that you didn't lose that and like he really kind of manipulates Spider-Man who's, and just that that last, I guess I think it's the last page of the issue where Spider-Man realizes he's been head and J.R.J.R. JR just sells the hell out of that moment and so does your narration and your thought, um, what you were writing, but also just seeing Spider-Man just from the back but looking defeated and looking like he's been yeah. gamed was just such a, a, a very impactful panel.
1: Yeah. John, John, Johnny is just so fun to write for. And well, I, I've said this before, but if I can write a comic book script and, and read it, reread it, and be like, oh, that's a, that's a decent comic book script. But that, that doesn't really mean anything. Like a comic is a comic. And so I always rewrite to the artwork when it comes in. And Johnny might switch some stuff around Or like add a panel here or there And so It's also fun to see When Johnny has drawn Something like that panel Or added a little bit of drama And how that affects How I do my Art pass on the script It really is a collaboration And I think I do think me and Johnny Work well together Like I like how the comic reads when it is done, even if that's different than how the script read.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How because that's comic books, you know that it's it, it, that's just how comic books should be.
0: Mm-hmm. Now we we kind of know that we're get we're getting a, a new Hobgoblin mystery. Now is that surreal to be doing that with John Muter Jr. of all people?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's it's insane. It's uh, so much fun and. And then really digging into all that hobgoblin stuff is so interesting.
0: Now, my guess my question is: Did your idea for a hobgoblin story come before, or after knowing that J.R.J.R. was the one writing, like, illustrating the book? Like, this is just something about that made more sense because it's J.R.J.R. Or would you yeah, have come up definitely. with definitely? Yeah, it was a big part of it.
1: Yeah, that, that was definitely a big part of it. And hobgoblin has such a weird lineage and so many hands have touched him and you know editors would come in and say this is who the hobgoblin was and then a writer would come in and say no it was him and so it's it's got a very uh, confused lineage but john Romita jr was there from the beginning so it's kind of fun to come in and let john Romita jr's art tell another hobgoblin story
0: mm-hmm. now did you did you pull a roger stern and keep it to yourself or, or does nick nick lowe know
1: uh, you know, Nick Lowe knows what I'm thinking, but I have structured it in a way that I might even surprise myself when we get there. <laughs> I still haven't like completely uh, decided how it's going to go, and which is kind of fun.
0: How do you approach a mystery? Like, obviously, there, there's a, a long history of, of mysteries in Spider-Man comics. Obviously, uh, and we've talked about the biggest one is obviously the Hobgoblin. So, how do you approach? But um, an identity mystery in a comic. Like, how do you want to, How do you think about the pacing, or how do you think about what clues you want to give? Because it's a very specific, you know, skill and structure to be able to pull it off successfully.
1: It is, and you really never know if you're going to do it successfully until it's done, because as you're telling the story, what you wanted to do, like start, might start becoming too obvious. And then you're like, okay, well, I don't want to do the obvious thing. But then you don't want to do something completely out of left field because people will be furious. And so it's one of the hardest things to do. It's, it's a super hard balancing act that I think you're working on the entire time. Because even when you get the art back, you can withhold information or add a little bit more information to see if people get it. And that will be happening up until the very end because one of these identity mysteries is the the hardest thing to do. Absolutely. Now,
0: when uh, this year, you know, Free Comic Book Day, you got to have a story in in, in the issue. Was that kind of a cool kind of bucket list experience that, you know, yours was one of the featured stories in a Free Comic Book Day title?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, again, that it was Spider-Man, a Spider-Man story, and then John Romita Jr. was drawing it. And that one was fun, which was another bucket list thing. That one was drawn uh, plot style, like Marvel style, which I've never done before, which was just a little little paragraph about each page. And then Johnny took it
0: from there. And that was super fun. Was, was it not difficult at all to kind of relinquish some of that control? Like, as you said, in the past, sometimes you would not, not necessarily overwrite, but overthink and be very kind of structured on how you wanted things to be. So going to, to a kind of a, a plot first uh, method, was that freeing for you to be able to kind of give control over or was it difficult?
1: It, it was freeing, but I'm proud of myself that it was freeing because I think it speaks to over the last, five or six years being able to fully embrace the collaborative nature of this medium and give things over, give, give a little bit of control over. I've just too many times in my whole career, you freak out about something so much and then the thing you didn't want to happen happens and then you end up loving it. And so now I just, I I just, anytime something comes in, that's not exactly the way I, Thought it thought it was going to be. I just see it as an opportunity, and have a lot of fun with it. And so I thought I felt like this was a culmination of that, where it got to the point where just like let, let's see what Johnny wants to do with this, and then I'll figure it out.
0: It was interesting to see from that standpoint to see what uh, John reader John Romita Jr. was doing with it, because obviously you know he was the writer, or not the writer. He was the artist on Daredevil when it was part of the Inferno period. Yeah. Um, and so and he dealt with a lot of this type of stuff with like you know peop- um, machines and other items, you know, eating people, and and so seeing him do that again felt very surreal. Like we've seen this before. Yeah, but it's, it's been like thirty five years, and we're, and he's still doing this.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's so weird how indelible those images from that Daredevil Inferno arc are. They're just burned into my brain. So, I think it
0: was just such a strong artistic artistic take that he had on it. Absolutely, and now you get to and now you get to to uh, to write a story with that take, you know, on on the page.
1: Yeah, yep.
0: Now, obviously, this does come up to dark web as kind of the, the new upcoming storyline. Um, what is? I mean, obviously, I, I don't expect you to be able to say much, but uh, just in general, what is it like working on? You know something that kind of bridges the two offices because we haven't seen a lot of Spider-Man and X-Men over the years. Like there've been a few, you know, specific periods, but generally speaking, there's not a lot of crossover. So, what it's like to kind of cross between those offices? Obviously, you've worked with both. Uh, you recently wrapped Tellions, but what's it like to kind of straddle those worlds?
1: It's really fun because X-Men has so many strong characters. And Spider-Man's one of the best team-ups in comics Just because he's a fun character to bounce off of people mm-hmm. So, I mean, what what can go wrong with, with Spider-Man and the X-Men? It's just the chance to work in both of those worlds Is the dream It's so much fun So it's so much fun to write write this stuff When the characters are so well-defined And those are some of the most well-defined characters in the business So it's just all gravy It's just all fun
0: is there much of much you can kind of tease about it that hasn't already been kind of recently reported?
1: Well, I think that it'll end up being a more emotional story than people expect, but it's also got a lot of fun, wild nostalgia in it, but also just fun character moments. And, I mean, Al Ewing, you know, obviously one of the great, comic book writers ever. And it's just been fun to watch him how his mind works and how he and Rom V have taken the the dark web stuff and fully integrated it into their Venom book so that stuff has like really cool crossover with what they're doing in that book right now. So I'm really excited for people to see that as well.
0: How how early sorry I'm gonna go back a bit, but how early in the process of beyond was it clear that Chasm was where we were going with Ben? Like, was that always kind of, you know, from the out onset something that was understood, or was that kind of something that kind of developed over time, or was that always the end goal?
1: Well, that was sort of my angle. And I know it's kind of controversial, but it did. I was just trying to solve for certain things. And one of the things I was trying to solve for was you know, what's fun about another Peter Parker being out there? And we don't, you know, it was also like in a situation where we didn't necessarily need another Spider-Man that was exactly like the other Spider-Man. So was there a way to explore the Peter Parker character and explore another uh, dimension of that character? And so, what I wanted to do was take away some of the responsibility that Peter Parker has and see what Peter Parker would be as a villain. And so, what I'm sort of what I'm also excited about for the dark web of it is to see, because I don't think at the end of that Beyond story, you got to see him turn into Chasm, but you didn't get to see why we turned him into Chasm. Mm-hmm. And so in the dark web, like what we thought was fun about it or cool about it or what would be sort of honoring ben, the Ben Riley character about it. And so I'm looking forward to, to dark web because it, it gets to we get to play with the catsum character now and show why we did what we did or what we thought would be fun and, and exciting or entertaining about it
0: obviously spider-man fandom especially online can at times be a dangerous place (laughs) um to say to say the least so how what has that been like i mean obviously there's also very vocal ben riley fans and I, I would imagine they're not super happy about him becoming a villain. Um, how do you wrestle with that? Because every character is obviously someone's favorite. Um, and Ben yeah. you know, has his legion of fans. And you affectionately called me a Ben head last time we chatted. Right, so, so, right. you So know, what, what do you say to some of those people who were so excited to see Ben Riley get the spotlight and then we, we have him turn into a villain? Now, obviously, that may have been the plan. But you know, to those people, they might be a little you know, sad to see a more heroic Ben go by the wayside. What do you say to, to those people?
1: I guess I, yeah I'd say that I, I get it like it goes one of the things that I wanted to do for better or worse uh, on this Spider-Man run was like I said I, I just I I kind of tweak out and put a lot of pressure on myself to make everybody happy and I wanted to allow myself to piss people off if that's what happened I, I'm, I'm never trying to piss anybody off, and I want, of course, everyone to love everything I write and shower me with praise after it's done. <laughs> but I also wanted to live in the reality that, that you can't do that. And I wanted to push myself, and if I felt like something was interesting or there was a story there, to do it even if I was going to eat some shit for it. Now, having said that, I don't think eating the shit is very fun. You know, it (laughs) sucks. (laughs) Um, But I understand where people are at. I understand that when you love a character, you want certain stories to be told with that character. And if someone comes along and they see another use for that character or another story they want to tell with that character, it pisses you off. Like, I've been pissed off many times uh, reading comics. So I guess I would say... uh, I'm sorry. I mean, the good thing about comics is
0: that we still have those issues. You know, we still have the... If you want to read yeah. Ben as a hero, you, there are still issues to read that. And G, uh, JMD just recently did a miniseries exploring, you know, Ben Riley's time as Spider-Man back in the 90s. So, I mean, there there is content out there for, for Ben Riley fans. It just, I guess... My takeaway is that it feels like Ben Riley's had a kind of a rough go over the last, let's say, five to seven yeah. years. And we kept getting kind of slightly villainous turns of him. So it felt like maybe this was the chance for him to be a, an outright hero again. But at least, you know, if you're going to make him a villain, this did feel more, a little bit more organic than, than some of the prior, you know, turns that he's taken in the last Yeah,
1: and And, yeah, I think it is organic for me. But what I, what I do think that I, I'm just older and I didn't, you know, I just feel like, like what you're saying, people have their favorite characters. And I do grapple with the fact that if other people had different ideas for what they wanted to see out of that character, I really do have um, sympathy for them. Um, but it, it just sucks that uh, everybody comes into these characters at different times mm. and has different thoughts about them. And there are things that people want, and w- also with the Ben Riley character, look like he can get his memories back. He can become Ben Riley again. There's nothing. I, I, you know, I would never do anything. I would never want to do anything permanent to any of these characters. And you know what? Frankly, I couldn't mm. because another writer could can always come along and uh, do something else with what, with what you've been doing, you know? Sure. Um, I, and I just, so it's hard for me when a character has had such a hard go of it because sometimes I feel like, well, maybe that's the kind of story that character is trying to tell, you know, maybe that not, it, it's just hard. Fiction is hard. These characters that we love are hard. Because if you if you give them a happy ending, the stories end. And that's just that's just the nature of the beast. Give them a happy ending. No no, sorry, this is comic books. None of these characters you love are going to get a happy ending because they're not their stories are not going to end. And so in that world bad stuff is going to continually happen. <laughs> To these characters, and they will come, and then they will crawl out of it. You know, crawl out of it and have a moment of happiness, and then it will all be taken away from them again. Uh, it's the nature of the beast with with a character that's going to be have that's going to have stories told about them in one continuity for sixty years, mm-hmm. or in Ben Riley's case, what we're creeping up on thirty years now. Yeah, twenty five. You know.
0: So uh, I, I, have a, I know we have to let you go in a moment, so I just have a few quick... Uh, I'm going to try and hit you with some quick questions. Um, you recently ended your run on Hellions, which, speaking of, you know, kind of sad endings or uh, unhappy endings, um, first of all, so sad to see that book go, because uh, it was so enjoy darkly enjoyable, um, but did you always kind of know that, um, you know, Nanny and Orphan Maker were going to, you know, go into the pit?
1: Yeah, I mean, and there were different versions of the of the story. There were some versions where all of them went into the pits. Uh, but it did feel like Nanny and Orphan Maker were going to go because I always felt like Nanny and Orphan Maker, didn't, again, didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. But Nanny and Orphan Maker had that good codependent relationship that would keep them from growing too much would keep them from getting to be full hero status because they're holding each other back because they're in a dysfunctional relationship. Mm-hmm. And and you talk about childhood trauma expressing itself in, in adulthood. Peter was just that running around. Orphan maker has not even grown up enough to escape his trauma. So he's mm-hmm. that's pulling him down into the pit no matter what. And then when I realized that separating those two characters and then having Nanny show up and go into the pit with him for me, that's just like a that was just too meaty to keep on the table. I really liked that moment.
0: Well, especially as as she you know sings him a song as they go into the pit too, right?
1: Yeah, because because codependent dysfunctional relationships. The reason people stay in them is because they provide a comfort and security because it's what you recognize. And it's scary to leave things that you don't recognize and aren't comfortable. And so I think that just sums up a dysfunctional relationship because it's like, oh, look, they're back together. They're comforting each other. And they are both completely screwed because they have chosen – They have chosen to stay in this weird, dysfunctional, codependent relationship.
0: Speaking of dysfunctional relationships, you also finally get Alex uh, gets his wish and Madeline gets returned, although obviously not all is right with Madeline. Um, What was it like kind of writing that? Because there's such an interesting interaction when they first see each other and she's so happy and she's just like, you know, basically saying, I have no agency here. And that's such an interesting thing for her to say immediately upon resurrection. So what was it like kind of crafting that experience between them? Because that's what Havoc had been you know, trying to get for so long was this return of Madeline, and it's not quite perfect, um, and obviously it's going to be a lot worse with Dark Web on the horizon, but what was it like to kind of craft this?
1: That was interesting because I thought it was very meaty that she finally gets resurrected and treated as a person, but she isn't, and she's resurrected to keep Alex happy, So, which sticks with how that character has been treated her entire existence, which is she has no agency. She exists as she relates to these Summers men. And I think if I had, if I had courage, I would have brought her back and not shown a light on that. And just had her and, and let another writer deal with that. But I didn't want people, I got scared and didn't want people to think I didn't see what was happening. Mm. Or didn't, you know, didn't think, I didn't want people to think that I was, or I thought that was cool. Mm. You know, you know, you know, if I had more courage, I would have had, I would have presented that as a happy ending. Exactly. And then let, let the reader slowly realize how fucked that was, <laughs> that that was presented as a happy ending <laughs> because it it still wasn't treat. It was tragic because it's still not treating her as a character, but I got scared. I didn't want people to think that I thought that that was a happy ending or a cool way to treat that character.
0: I think it still works really well, though, because, it, because she gets to confront him on it and kind of call him on the bullshit. And I think that adds... Gives her more agency in that moment that she recognizes it and isn't afraid to say anything. So I know what you're saying, totally. But I do do think it it allows her more agency because she's not suffering in silence. That she's immediately like, "This is screwed up."
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. And even if I had done the happy ending, you know, you would want to give a little bit of a wink to the camera, or yeah, that's could be. You would you would want to suggest that something bad was on the horizon.
0: Now, when you had that reveal of the Goblin Queen, like I don't think anyone knew. I'm trying to remember the chronology, but Dark Web, like we hadn't had the Free Comic Book Day issue. Like this was not anything on the horizon. But was this how early you knew that you were going to be doing something with her?
1: No, I think I think that was a happy accident situation where we wanted to build an event around chasm and what he wanted and how he related to spider-man and as i was thinking of ways to make the story big there was also this idea that madeline would be taken would be uh taking over or i don't want to spoil anything i don't know i don't know if this has been revealed or not but madeline was going to get a lot of power and so and then i just started thinking about oh ben riley and madeline Pryor they have the exact same story or they have the same grievances. And so I pitched that in a meeting, and people were, I was like, is that too much? Because, you know, I, I've been, I, I really go back to the limbo well a lot, and I just told these X-Men stories, but everyone, but everyone in the room was like, oh, yeah, clearly it has to be that. Like, that's that's the story. And so we ran with it.
0: Okay. So now I'm going to, as I promised, I have a few quick questions, and I'll let you go. Um, one listener asked, uh, "Is Peter's mental journey in the first five issues of the new run on ASM inspired by your own kind of mental journey into comics?"
1: Hmm, what parts? I mean, I I, I would guess there's something to do with it because it's it's pretty emotional. Will you ask that question one more time?
0: Yeah. So they said, "Is Peter's mental journey in the first five issues inspired by your journey into comics?"
1: I wouldn't say it's consciously inspired, but I would I would guess that it is subconsciously inspired <laughs> because all all these stories, it's you're, you're just sort of animating feelings that are inside your body and giving voice to them. So I do think that I was going through some stuff when I was writing this thing, and I'm sure in five years' time I'll look back on it and go like, oh, yeah, I wasn't even trying to hide it. That's exactly what this is about.
0: <laughs> Next question is, uh, what is one thing you hope people take away from your work on Spider-Man?
1: Who? I What I'm trying to do, and the only thing I know how to do, is try to get people to feel about Spider-Man the way I felt about Spider-Man when I was reading good Spider-Man comics, which is a great feeling. And that's all I'm trying to do is make people feel like they are spending time with this character that I love and watching him do things that spider-man would do because we all love him i I, I, he's such a great character i just want to be i just want to make sure that i am providing a space for people to spend quality time with spider-man i did not expect my answer to be that insane but i think (laughs) that's what i'm trying to do (laughs) that's a good answer
0: um (laughs) Uh, This is a a little harder to be a a quick question, but I just want to maybe get what's on the top of your head. Uh, What are some of your favorite Spidey arcs?
1: Well, there's the first... There's the annual number one, which is the first appearance of the Sinister Six. I read a box of comics when I was like six or seven years old, And then when I was 11, I was at a newsstand and I saw Craven's Last Hunt on the newsstand. And so that's that's the next Spider-Man story that I read Wow! and absolutely loved it. But it was so depressing and sad. It actually, you know, it made me sad as a a reader. So I I think that's why I probably am more apt to get sad every once in a while in my Spider-Man stories or Peter Parker being sad or bad things happening feels right to me. Every once in a while, I like a good dark Spider-Man story. And then there is the, the McFarlane era of Spider-Man was so huge for me. The writing and the art. I just loved that era. I love Spider-Man trying to have a normal life with Mary Jane and then crazy stuff happening. I'm trying to think. If anything else jumps out and then, you know, the stuff I, – I clearly I, – you know, I've enjoyed a lot of Spider-Man, but it, it, it just gets weird when you – oh, and then the JMS stuff. You know, mm. the JMS stuff was such a breath of fresh air when it showed up. And, you know, and John Romita Jr. obviously had a lot to do with that. For sure. And then JM, JM, those, those two together, it was just magical to have something that felt – just a spider-man book at a high level of quality and again just being able to spend time with the character of spider-man and watch spider-man do spider-man things (laughs) again was so fun And, and obviously i do think that had a pretty big impression on me
0: okay good answers um, and the last question, um, which I actually could have spent an entire interview about it, but um, did your comic background have any impact on the way you approached the storytelling mechanics in the writer's room for She-Hulk or Marvel Zombies with uh, the Bravo Studios?
1: For sure, because the comic books were how I got my reps in and how I built and conditioned my storytelling brain because when you're in those writers room writers rooms, you're, you're you're throwing ideas out until something feels right and feels good, and so you've developed when you get in there like you're you're valuable to the extent that your your brain's feeler is in tune with what the story is trying to be. So. It it felt really good to know that all of those nights and weeks and years of me two o'clock in the morning trying not to have a panic attack because I didn't feel like the story was good enough and just over and over and over and over and over running through things that could happen until the thing that should happen clicks into place seeing that work in a television writer's room was great. It was sort of a uh, karate kid moment where you're, you know, wax on, wax off for 15 years. And then you get into the ring with other writers and suddenly you're like, Oh, my brain works. And it works because I've been conditioning it for the last 15 years and all that intensely hard work that I did didn't disappear I'm I get to reap the rewards of that now so that's been super cool
0: how did you adapt your mind because I mean you're used to thinking about the, the characters as they are on the page and now you're dealing with the characters as they are on the screen and they're not necessarily the exact same thing and there's going to be a slightly different tenor and tone did that take some adapting in your mind Do you have to kind of remind yourself no no this isn't the Marvel Universe this is the MCU um was there any kind of variation yeah. in your head like that
1: yeah, and scripting is so much different because comic books have... There's they're just this built-in structure to them where you decide how many panels should be on the page and then you decide how many beats... or you, know, you, you fill in those beats and maybe you need more or less and then they can only be a certain length. And writing the scripts for live action, you're hearing the actors' voices in your head, but you don't know how many pages you have. So having to adjust my brain from something that had these parameters to something that didn't have parameters was very challenging. Like I knew when I had written a good comic book page that made sense because because I had just done it so many times. Mm-hmm. I had less of an idea if I had written a scene that makes sense or was good or because I couldn't feel the structure of it. In my head, and I think I've gotten a lot better at that. What is interesting, and I've discovered this over the last year, especially, is I did so much freaking out about comic books, writing comic books, that to this day, writing for movies and television, I don't know, I don't get as stressed out about it as I do for comic books, and I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because I love comic books so much or because it was my first professional work or I've always wanted to – I don't know what it is, but it's somehow given me this idea that like the comic books is the hard stuff and then I'm able to treat all that other stuff as fun stuff. So the comic books are deadly serious and everything else is, is just for fun. You know, and even when that other stuff is paying me more money, it still feels like, well, that's, th- this is just me tooling around. I'm just having fun here. <laughs> but then, but then I get back and it's time to write Hellions number 11, and it's like, everyone stay away from me. This is, this is serious. Okay. <laughs> this has got to be perfect and it's serious, and I've got to get my soul into this thing. Uh, it's just, it's wild. It's wild how this stuff works.
0: Is, is there something to the immediacy of the comics too, maybe? Because, like, when you write a comic, you know, it's not going to be that long before you have a finished comic in your hands. Whereas there's a yeah. sense of disconnect when you work on TV or any type of film production where it could be a long time before, uh, like when we talked last year I think you had initially kind of finished up in, in the She-Hulk uh, writer's room at the time and that shows yeah. still not out and so like that's how yeah. much of a disconnect so maybe that's why you're able to kind of have a bit more fun with it because yeah. it doesn't seem as immediate.
1: Yeah, and it's not only is She-Hulk not out, but in Which is a part of it for sure, but in that two years since I've written it, thousands of well paid professionals have touched it, yeah, and are tweaking it and are making it better and making sure this works, making sure that works. And so, by the time it reaches the audience, yes, I am very proud of what I did on the show and and what I contributed, but. There's a no universe where i'm I'm the author of that you know it's its own thing where many people have touched it comic books they're going to be out in a month and my words are going to be directly in front of your face and you're going to read them and the hands there there's so much so many fewer hands that have touched it that there's no I, I think there's nowhere to hide as well. Mm. It's just my words in your face with the art. And, and of course, it's all working together, and there are other hands touching it. But there's nowhere to hide. And on top of that, I just know what it felt like when I was a kid and when I was in high school and when I was in college. I know what it felt like to read a great fucking comic. And I know what it feels like to read a boring comic and i want to i want to write good comics that people put down and like feel good after they've read them and like oh that was not a waste of money I, and and i feel personally responsible if people don't feel like they got their money's worth from a comic that would be the worst feeling i can think of and so when people do think I wrote a shitty comic. I, I, I look, I've got to tune a lot of that out just to keep working, but it feels fucking terrible mm-hmm. because I want people to love the comics that I write. That's the reason I do it. I'm trying to transmute love to the the reader. I want them to feel loved and taken care of and feel like I cared about the 20 minutes that they are going to spend reading this comic and that's very important to me
0: very well said well i can say as a fan of yours for many many years that i have gotten a lot of enjoyment out of your comics and they've been uh from batlin jack to Elektra to you know your recent stuff with hellions uh i again i loved ant-man and i love your you know your current stuff on amazing spider-man so i i hope you continue to stay in comics for a long time we lost you for a few years that was our loss and so i'm so glad you're back
1: Appreciate it, uh, Adam. And look, I don't know if you're in a hurry, but I I have a couple questions for you. Sure. Uh, And maybe you've done a whole podcast on this where you talked about it. And if you have, feel free to cut this out of this podcast. Um, But you've done a thousand episodes of this thing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now how do you know it's time to quit did you start doing this podcast knowing that you had a itch to scratch and at some point that itch would be scratched did you just keep doing it and suddenly you felt like it was time to stop how do you see this body of work and how did you know it was done
0: Good question. Uh, well, when I started, I don't think I had any any idea what I was doing. Um, I think I was just like, you know, what? There's a lot of podcasts coming up. This is would have been 2012 because it was we're celebrating the 10th t- anniversary of the show is when we're ending it. Um, and so as the years went on, my life changed. Um, you know, I my job became more intensive, so I had less time to kind of divert and spend on comics. I when I first started, I had no kids, and now I have two kids, and so that takes up a lot of mental bandwidth, and so. I, I think I felt a few hundred episodes ago that I was like, well, now that I'm like 700 or 800, I should keep going to 1,000. I think that was always kind of the, you know, uh-huh. the, big, the big round number. And then once I was at 900, I was like pretty sure that was true. Um, but it, 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 I've had a lot of mixed emotions about it, to be honest. Um, it, I've loved doing it. I Around issue, episode 250 is when I started doing a lot of interviews. Um, it's funny because my wife used to make fun of me because... Uh, for a while, I thought it was only going to be like for a little bit. I didn't, I thought that I was going to run out of gas or you know, people would stop saying yes. So I kept calling it the uh, the summer interview season and it just never stopped. Uh, and I was very uh-huh. lucky that you know, I kept reaching out to people like yourself or Chip Starsky or Ron Friends or whoever it might be. And people were so gracious with their time that I got to talk about a lot of comics that I've loved over the years and with the actual creators, which has been invaluable. I think when I started. And maybe I thought that it would be one of those bigger podcasts with really big, you know, wide net in terms of people listening. That never really happened. I think that's a lot to do with me not really knowing enough about how to, you know, put it out there into the world and not really having the, um, the not emotional bandwidth, that's the wrong word, but just not having something in me that to, to really promote it enough. And I think part mm-hmm. of that's just kind of being a little self-conscious about things. And also just in general, I didn't have the energy. I have a, a debilitating sleep condition that has left me feeling exhausted hundred percent of the time. And thankfully mm-hmm. I'm able to keep going. Cause I have a, my acupuncturist has been able to, you know, resuscitate some of that energy, but it's been very difficult. So as that's gone on, it's just been like with all the other things kind of pulling my focus, I just thought that maybe this was the, the, the only time. And if I, I would be upset if I, you know, kept going and then was like, "Oh, you know, I got to stop." It's, you know, episode one thousand and twenty-five. I would have felt like I, I missed an opportunity. So I'm definitely going to miss it. There's things I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss, t- you know, having a reason to talk to people like yourself and being able to pick your brain about things has been so invaluable. And so that's the part I'll miss the most. Um, but the mental energy of, you know, scheduling, putting together episodes, that kind of thing, that I'll, I'll feel good about not having to do that. And also not feeling like I have to be on top of every comic that comes out so that I have a knowledge base Mm -hmm. um, and being able to slow that down and maybe pare down what I'm reading a little bit and, uh, you know, still enjoy the books. I always have. But, you know, that became a part of it too is always trying to be on top of things or, you know, every Mm -hmm. other episode that I did was a reviews episode. So you know when i first started no kids no other you know things dragging my time i used to do like 20 books a week and now i do like 2 to 4 <laughs> because i just don't yeah. have that energy anymore and i don't have the time to read the comics so it was a really hard decision and i don't think you expected such a long answer but um yeah i i thought that you know what if i'm going to end it Let's end it on my own terms. Let's end it on episode a thousand. There's something round about that. As I said, it's going to come out on the 10th anniversary of the show, which I thought was a nice way to end it as well. And I'll definitely miss it. But I'm very lucky that I have a few podcasters that I know that I can periodically show up on their shows. So if I still want to talk about things, I do have an avenue. Um, I just won't be the one driving the show. And to be honest, that's probably a good thing because uh, there's a lot of stress with being the one on charge. And so being able to guest on someone else's show and you know just talk for like an hour and not have to be the one coming up with all the questions of the, or the topics etc is going to be nice and nice and freeing yeah well and i did expect a long answer of course you've done
1: it for t- 10 years i think it will be very interesting for you to see what happens when you have like a chunk of your uh life back and sort of your passion energy back mm-hmm. i know that when i quit comics for five years I realized that I had, uh, you know, interests and hobbies that I wanted to do <laughs> that I wasn't doing when when I was writing comics. And then when I started writing comics again, those all the drive to do that stuff went away again because I just think that I'm very passionate about comics, and so it drains it just like some of that energy mm-hmm. away and you've been doing this for 10 years clearly you're passionate about it cuz it sounds like a lot of work it's like what two of these things a week
0: basically yeah
1: yeah and i think it'll be very interesting for you once you, because you obviously have a lot of passion in you that's why that's why you're able to do this for 10 years and now that that's not that passion isn't going to go away once you stop doing this it'll just get diverted into something else and i think it'll be very interesting for you to see, you know, like what part of your uh, interests light up after this.
0: For sure, I've talked with uh, a fellow podcaster, and I, I guess technically we haven't officially announced that we're working on this, so um, th- I'm going to mention it anyway. But we've talked about, you know, taking. I've obviously done a lot of interviews over the years, and so starting to call those and maybe, you know, start to collate them and put them into a book format. Um, you know, yeah, and that that would be the kind of the next natural place to go. And you know, if we sell anything, that'd be great. But really, it's just more about for me being able to have a way of being able to say, well, this was 10 years of my life. Do I have anything physical to show for it? Right now I have, you know, I have, obviously I can download the episodes and I can, you know, they're on iTunes, et cetera, But being able to have that in some sort of codified book format would be really special to me. Be able to say like, you know, these are the conversations I had with people. Um, I also don't always have the best memory. So being able to go back and reread them would be really interesting. So that's, I think the next natural point to go. And obviously there's a lot of you know, work that goes into uh, obviously, you know, uh, going through the audio, and even if you use a transcription service, it's not perfect. So there's a lot of time yeah. going through that just to pare that down, and then figuring out what to use in a book. So if I think if I if I'm ready for you, you know using up some of the energy I'm about to free up, that's likely where it would go, so that I have some sort of memento of the last ten years of amazing conversations.
1: Yeah, and it'll, I think it'll be fun to go back and sort through that ten years and. You know, you'll probably pick out themes from the interviews and and I bet it could be be a pretty, pretty good book. And and I just want to say, like, I think that you've been able to do this for so long because I think you're uh, the, the work you do does come through in your interviews. You know, I've never felt like it was hard to talk to you or that I was doing all the work. Like, I feel like your questions are very well thought out and I don't think you can do well thought out questions unless you actually care about something so uh, good job great podcast and I appreciate being on uh, three different times that was really cool and and uh, being able to sort of track the career with somebody has been really fun and valuable for me
0: for sure. My, my biggest regret is that uh, when you're finally coming to Toronto in a couple of weeks that I won't be here um, so please yeah. come back next year um, I will be here <laughs> so please come okay. back to another Fan Expo because it would be nice to meet you in person um, I, one of my uh, my best friends who's uh, I've mentioned him in the past he's such a huge fan of your work so he's uh, you know very excited about he's trying to figure out if he's going to be able to make it down because he'd just love to meet you so hopefully that happens
1: nice, yeah, tell him to say hey if he does absolutely
0: Well, again, thank you so much for so much of your time. I really appreciate it, and not just today, but, again, the other interviews as well. It's been really interesting to kind of get inside your brain and understand more about how you make comics, why you make comics. And you've had a lot of really interesting answers. And as I said, the idea of the whiteboard is still something that sticks in my mind. It's such an interesting, like, why wouldn't everyone write a comic book that way kind of idea.
1: Right, right, right. I'll send you a a picture of it. Um, I'll email it to you. Absolutely. That would be awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. I'll let you get
0: back to your evening, but thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. Have a good one, man. You too. Bye.